More than 1 billion people around the world currently live without access to electricity. You're listening to Cooler Earth, a podcast of climate exchange. Your weekly dive into energy transitions, sustainability, environmental politics, and all things climate change. Each week we feature special guests and in-depth discussions with your hosts, Amanda Griffiths, Ryan Maya, and Maria Virginia Olano. So when we think about getting access to electricity to all of these people who currently live without it, that is a transition that needs to happen through renewable sources of electricity. Because if we do it by fossil fuels, there's no way we're going to reach our emissions reduction targets that we're looking for. Right. So the, the traditional fossil fuel model just isn't sustainable in terms of the emissions that it produces and looking towards our emission targets for a livable future for our planet. But they also bring with them a lot of power dynamics that we don't want to see for entirely different reasons in our future communities. Right. So we talk about decarbonizing. That means moving away from carbon emitting sources of energy. Decarbonizing the world can happen in a profoundly unequal way as well. Perpetuating those systems of energy production and delivery that have resulted in such deep inequalities around the world. So not only do we want to move away from heavy emitting sources of carbon, but we want to move towards a model that's really giving equal access and and just living conditions for, for everyone. So from an energy perspective, if we swap out existing fossil fuel energy monopolies with renewable sources of energy, that creates no new societal wealth and it doesn't really redistribute power in the ways that it has the potential to. So when we're looking at the transition towards renewable energy, we're not only thinking about the environmental impacts, but seeing it as an opportunity to actually reduce social injustices and social inequality through the decentralization of power production. As it currently stands, you have people paying for their power, and that power is provided by utility companies. And uh, it kind of makes more sense with the fossil fuel model because, you know, your everyday person can't be out mining for coal or or drilling for oil. Uh, They just don't have the resources for that. But, you know, I'm, I'm in Boston. I can't really be finding my own energy each day. So I pay a utility company. But when you think about renewables, you have energy coming from the sun, the wind. These are things that are, are commonly owned. So it makes a lot more sense to have community ownership of the generation of that renewable power. But, of course, as you guys have alluded to, we have a danger of not allowing that transition to happen, not allowing that energy democratization to take place. And that's sort of the conversation we want to have right now is how... We can ensure that that democratization of our energy sources is able to occur alongside the generation of renewable technologies. Right. And that's what has been coined the term of energy democracies. This idea that through the transition to renewable energies, we're also able to transform the social systems in which we live and provide more democracy and more equity for communities. But from a profit-driven perspective, there are definitely incentives to not allowing that energy democratization to happen. As uh, for utility companies, that's an area of where you can generate a lot of wealth. And if you have communities generating their own power, that's a loss of wealth. Right. And I think in countries like the United States, it's 
providing a lot of upheaval for what has been the traditional energy market for about 60 years now. But now these decentralized locations of wind or, or solar, a lot of times solar in Massachusetts, have those then distributing out our customers interconnecting to the grid, but keeping some of the power for themselves. And it's completely turning that model on its head. And you see utility companies pushing back because the way that they used to generate money is really not going to be valid in the long term moving forward. And we know it's not going to work, you know, 10, 20 years from now. But even now, we're starting to see them pushing back and kind of trying to drag their heels on pushing forward with with renewables. And when you think of that in terms of energy democracy, uh, you have these communities that are being affected by fracking, that are having their housing prices decline because there's uh, oil drilling nearby, environmental hazards that our country is experiencing as a whole, yet we're not actually really reaping the benefits of that energy being used. Other countries are using that energy and the people making a profit in the United States are the only ones really getting any benefit from that. Or even regionally within the United States, we don't have fracking in Massachusetts, but we have a lot of natural gas coming into the region. A lot of that's coming from Pennsylvania or other areas where fracking is really expanding in, in these really rural regions. And so the people whose land, they can't feasibly use it anymore, or their water is getting contaminated and they're seeing all of the issues you see with actual fracking, they are not actually getting the benefits of that energy. Right. And this idea that the communities where energy is generated get affected has been very prominent. So mm -hmm. when we think about drilling for oil and gas and pipeline generation and where they cross through to get to their end place, it carries a lot of human rights and justice issues. Right. However, renewables do as well. They and do. we will talk to our guests a little later on in the sense that down in Mexico, for example, there's a huge coalition of indigenous peoples fighting against renewables, mm -hmm. which might seem counterintuitive at first until you realize that these big multinational corporations right. are coming into their land and just setting up wind farms and so in that sense, that's what is really important to keep in mind and take into consideration that just because it's renewable, it's not necessarily what we are striving for. Right. Because I, I think what we think about in terms of environmental justice impacts, it's really natural to think of a heavy polluting fossil fuel as having environmental justice implications because you can you know it's spewing a lot of chemicals into the air. So you think renewables, you think, oh, the solar and wind, these are all really clean energy sources. But because they're being implemented in this energy system that we already have in place and the system of power that we already have in place, it's their implementation that's creating those justice issues, not the nature of that actual fuel source. Yeah, there are still the questions of who's going to bear the brunt of the mm -hmm. negative externalities of this? Who, right. Whose community is going to have to house these uh, giant installations? Mm -hmm. Which community is going to have to get moved? What ecosystem is going to be in, uh, affected by the implementation of this? Mm -hmm. And even though renewables uh, present a lot more opportunities to really uh, reduce those negative externalities, they're often still there, and it's something yeah. we need to keep, be conscious of. We can't just assume, mm -hmm. as you were saying, that clean energy is always just energy. And the concept of ownership is also key, because who owns those resources and then reserves the right to distribute them as they see fit or sell them is also a key point mm -hmm. of contention. Specifically, when you think about the major oil and gas companies around the world that have already been investing in renewables, yeah. and that might perhaps not be the way in which we want to move forward with these massive multinationals 
that have not always had the people's best interest. Right. We have so much potential with renewables to create microgrids and really be self-sustaining so communities have so much more of a say in how they're getting their energy. And there's so much potential there with all the technologies that are being created. But you have to look at the world that they're coming into. And and we really have to be diligent about making sure that we're adopting renewables in a way that's pushing power dynamics forward so that everybody's getting access to these new energy resources and they're evenly and fairly distributed. Right, so to talk a little bit more about this, we have Shalanda Baker here today. She's a lawyer, an academic, and an activist who was awarded a Fulbright Garcia Robles grant in 2016, which she utilized to explore Mexico's energy reform, climate change, and indigenous rights. Her expertise lies in the interplay between global energy transition, climate change, and indigenous people's rights around the world. Hello, thank you so, so much for joining us today. We're really excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Looking back at your career, and you've had a lot of jobs in a lot of different industries and sectors, and when you went from being a lieutenant in the Air Force to a corporate finance lawyer to an activist in the nonprofit sector and all of these different roles, did you find that it was intimidating or, or scary to make those big of leaps, or was it kind of a natural transition for you? Yes. I always worry that when people look at my CV, they'll think I'm insane because they, <laughs> you know, the, the path isn't that clear. And um, I, I think, you know, I've made these transitions at times when it was very clear that it was time to transition and that, you know, the job was no longer serving me and it was just untenable in whatever way. For example, I left the military back when the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy was still in uh, in effect. And at that time, I had been serving as a military officer. I graduated from the Air Force Academy and felt like the military was my career. I mean, it was everything I had been preparing for. But I was actually in a relationship with a woman, which was kind of illegal back then uh, under the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy. And at some point in our relationship, um, she became abusive and then um, blackmailed me to to prevent my coming forward to the authorities or even to my boss or anything like that. And so that was the sort of awakening around social justice, but also a realization that it was time to go right. and that, you know, I needed to come forward and that serving in the military in that capacity was no longer tenable. And so, yes, that was a very scary transition. That was my first big transition. And so I went from the military and to law school. Uh, eventually, there was a, a moment in between where I was working at a nonprofit in San Francisco that was serving low-income schools and communities that were very under-resourced in education. And it became clear to me through that that, oh my gosh, there's so many ways in which law sets individuals and communities up to fail. And so I left that job. It was much less scary to come to law school. But from there, I graduated and became a corporate lawyer, which was never my intention. I was a corporate lawyer doing energy project finance. So that was a learning experience. Eventually, I transferred to Tokyo and got to work in Japan for about a year. I knew my calling was to to work for social justice. And so I left the law firm really um, hoping to realize that dream. So you're in Tokyo, it's the middle of the financial crisis, and you decide to book a one-way ticket to Mexico. Right. What, what was animating that decision? What was the drive behind it, and why Mexico? 
Yeah. So, you know, as you said, I was living in Tokyo. It was during the financial crisis. I had never been uh, in a place that was so highly mechanized and advanced. I mean, again, it's one of the most advanced places in the world. So the trains run on time to the minute. It's very orderly and it's very industrialized, modern in a sense. And so I was living in that, having questions about sustainability, and there there was at that time a growing sustainability movement in Japan. It's an island, and so people there are very concerned with questions of sustainability. And so I started to hear more about the sustainability conversation, but wasn't in, involved in it myself. And so right around midway through my time in Japan, rather than come back to the to the continental U.S., to Boston for the holiday break, I decided to go to Hawaii, which was only about a six-hour flight from Japan. And it was the exact opposite of my experience there. So whereas Japan was concrete and big buildings, Hawaii was lush and green and um, verdant, and there was a strong indigenous culture, um, even though the people there have definitely experienced the impacts of colonization but there was a sense of stewardship for the land in ways that, that I didn't see in Japan and even in, in the continental U.S. And there was where I started to question my own role in taking care of the planet and started to understand that I wanted to be a part of being a steward for the planet as opposed to being a part of the problem in this consumption that I saw in Japan. And eventually decided that I was going to leave the firm. I, I flew down to Mexico and I decided to live on a what was kind of a commune. Um, <laughs> it's called El Bosque. And it's a little experimental community put together to figure out ways to grow food sustainably and feed ourselves, figure out how to build houses in a way that was sustainable and be in community in ways that were more sustainable. And so I eventually did buy a one-way ticket to Oaxaca to explore ideas of justice and sustainability, and also to learn Spanish. So that's why I ended up down there. Right. And Oaxaca is the windiest place on earth. Yes. Correct. Mm -hmm. And so they've seen a lot of renewable wind energy projects there. Mm -hmm. And at what point you get there and you realize that the indigenous communities there are in some ways opposed to this renewable development, which might seem a little counterintuitive to people who think, you know, renewables are the way to go. This is what we should be doing to combat climate change, but in what ways did you see that development pitted against human rights and indigenous rights? So it was fascinating. I I left the U.S. And, and moved to Mexico really thinking I was only going to be there for a couple months and eventually link up with a group, an NGO or indigenous peoples themselves who were fighting against extractive industries like oil and gas and mining. And so when I, when I got to Oaxaca, I actually just landed and I really set down roots. And so about uh, four months into my time there, I was at a community fair in the park and I saw a little sign tacked to a tree that said, come listen to our struggles against wind. And it, there was sort of an electric lightning bolt that went down my spine at that moment where I knew that I was supposed to be at that meeting. This was not what I expected, you know, right. the wind debate. And so I went and heard about um, the ways that Farmers and indigenous people had been dispossessed of land, had been sort of taken for a ride by wind companies who'd given them, you know, $10 a year for two acres, you know, to rent land that they no longer use for farming. And the ways that decisions were made regarding communally owned land without asking that community. So I learned a lot about the struggle and found myself captivated by it. 
and not surprised, though, that with wind energy development, we were seeing some of the same problems that we saw or see still with the traditional oil, gas, and mining sectors. And I got really curious about financing mechanisms and other structural issues that lead to these same outcomes, even with clean energy. So from a legal perspective, you're a lawyer, you're a, yes. a law professor here at Northeastern. What is the legal gap that's preventing these people from having their voices heard? And is there a legal remedy to make sure that these indigenous peoples have their, their voices heard, their rights respected? That's an interesting question. There are a couple of gaps, and there's also a framework. So I'll start with the framework. There is an international law respecting the rights of Indigenous peoples, as reflected in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, adopted in 2007. And only four nations voted no or abstained from that, and they were Canada, the U.S., Australia, New Zealand. It was a watershed moment, which established that Indigenous peoples had the right of free, prior, informed consent when it comes to decisions that impact their land. It's a declaration, which means it's not in what we call hard law, but it's a declaration of our understanding of how Indigenous peoples relate to development in their land. There's another treaty, which is hard law, meaning it's binding for nations that sign it, and that is International Labor Organization number 169. And that uh, establishes that Indigenous peoples should be consulted when there is a development project that affects their territory. And so the international law is fairly well covered with respect to at least understanding that Indigenous people have a right to consultation and consent. But the international law relates to states. The entities that are engaged in the bulk of development are corporations. And so there is a gap. Corporations are not held to the same legal standards that states are. And with the imperative for renewable energy development upon us due to climate change, we're seeing more and more rights just sort of being run over in terms of indigenous rights and renewables. But there's also an opportunity to not do it that way. Absolutely. And, and the reason is because renewables are a lot more decentralized and they mm -hmm. allow local ownership and cooperative ownership. Is that something that you see as a viability or how does that can play into achieving sustainable development and electrifying so much of the world that is still not? There's a great book, it's Energy Democracy, and Denise Fairchild and Al Weinrub have sort of put together emerging practices in something called energy democracy, which is, you know, grassroots engagement in this energy transition. And there's a line in the introduction that says, we can decarbonize in a way that is still unjust or something like that, right? We can replicate these systems of extraction, these systems of power dynamics, even in this clean energy transition. And there's nothing that guarantees that this transition itself will be just and equitable and lead to different outcomes for the most vulnerable. I absolutely see an opportunity, as you mentioned, for bottom-up energy development. There's still such a push toward mega, big-scale development, though, particularly in the global south. This is the mechanism of development that has made lots of people very wealthy for so many years. And so this is the only thing that many multinational companies can even contemplate as the approach. But as you say, renewables lend themselves to more uh, flexibility and distributed small-scale generation. And I should also mention that those large centralized facilities are vulnerable to climate change, right? And they're vulnerable to some of the disruptions we see with the massive storms that have become more and more frequent. And so there's, there's also an economic argument to be made that, that smaller is better. 
and decentralized is better. And more resilient, too. Mm -hmm. Because in the case that those transmission lines do go down based right. on storms or flooding, etc., there is a concept that microgrids can actually be more a more resilient energy future for communities as well. Absolutely. I've, I've talked to regulators, I've talked to politicians and folks about this energy transition and, you know, talked about the challenges of the just pathway. But what if we could have at the end of the day and at the end of this transition, a world that is fundamentally more equal, where we are all more resilient in the face of climate change and where we don't have the concentration of certain facilities in low income, poor communities um, and communities of color. Right. The 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 ability of an energy system to impact every aspect of life um, is well known. We know that dirty facilities lead to different health outcomes. And so if we could do development in a way that undoes all of that harm, I think it would make us all better. And so we're, we're designing that now. It's all a very experimental. Here in the U.S., it's on a state-by-state -state level. We don't have a lot of support from the federal government right now to implement you know, adjust <laughs> energy transition model. But there are states and there are even cities that are very curious about this. And I, I again, I think it's one by one. Um, I don't think there's any silver bullet, but it absolutely, for it to be just, it has to reflect the goals and wishes of the local community. And I would add that it also requires true ownership of, of the assets and, and true economic empowerment through the development. And yes, that's hard. It's okay. We can do it. We're smart people. <laughs> so a last question, oh, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Are you an optimist about the future? Oh my gosh, I have to be. I absolutely have to be. I mean, I ended my class today and I always like to offer reflections on the class and what we've been up to and, you know, what I've sensed from people. My students were surprisingly hopeless and pessimistic. And I often left our classes sort of feeling like they were out of hope and I, I wanted to sort of instill in them some sort of hope. And what I left them with today was this historical perspective, which is we had slavery, which was the law of the land for hundreds of years. And we thought that that institution could never be broken. And it was broken because of activists and because people believed that it could change. We had a civil rights movement. We had a women's rights movement. We had the fall of fascism in the 40s. And, you know, we put a man on the moon. We've done all of these really remarkable things as a civilization. We can do this. And, and it will take dedication. It will certainly take people at the bottom, at the grassroots fighting for this. But they have to understand what's at stake. So a lot of these policies are being pushed without them really understanding how they distribute power. I believe that will get there. And I am fighting personally to be the bridge between that policy debate and the people on the ground who need the knowledge. And I'm talking about those who understand movements and those who understand um, what's at stake, but don't actually understand how to operationalize it in policy. Um, and so that's my work um, as a scholar and an activist uh, going forward. Well, you're amazing. You've Aww. done some extraordinary things. Thank you. And this has been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you guys. And best of luck with your efforts. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for including me. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe on your favorite listening platform and follow us on Instagram at Cooler Earth. Stay tuned for next week's episode and thanks for listening. Bye.